will be in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. We'll get to that in just a couple of minutes here. If I were to ask you this question, um, this question might take us places in our heart and in our past as we would reflect. And the question is, what is the worst thing you've ever been through in your life? That actually might be a bit of a dangerous question to really ask somebody. You know, when I think of the worst thing in my life, um, because of my experience and things in my past, there's actually a couple of things that come up, and I don't know which what I would say is worst. A lot of times when you go through certain things, it may seem like the worst thing in that moment. Here lately, I've been thinking about the account of Jairus from the New Testament. If you remember that name, he was a synagogue ruler. In the Gospels, uh, probably the synagogue ruler in the town of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, one of the places Jesus ministered. And it was him who came to Jesus when his 12-year-old daughter was near death, as the Gospels relate to us. And I wonder about the kinds of emotions and things that Jairus went through at that time in his life when his 12-year-old girl was sick to the point of death um, and perhaps him as a father to start thinking, what else can I possibly do? Probably had been praying to the God of Israel, had been looking for hope in his situation And he had been obviously somewhat familiar hearing about Jesus of Nazareth and what Jesus of Nazareth could do. And so he went out and he found him. And when he found the Lord, he pleaded with him to come to his house to lay hands on his daughter to heal her, believing that Jesus could do so. And Jesus agreed to go with him, as the Gospels tell us. And as they went, though, because Jesus was becoming more and more popular, Great crowds of people had gathered. Have you ever been in a big crowd of people and try to move through it, you know, and you're kind of like doing this and trying to get through, and you don't get to just sprint to where you're going. You just have to kind of meander your way through. And I kind of imagine the journey to Jairus' house was a lot like that, that it was kind of like, you know, excuse me, pardon me, make way, please. And, and, and apparently the disciples were even trying to kind of make a path. And so you could imagine, I mean, I even wonder again with Jairus, okay, my daughter's dying, I found Jesus, could you get out of the way, please? (laughs) Could you make some pads? We're trying to get to my house here. I don't have much time. I don't know how much time we've got. And I wonder where his emotional barometer was in the moments as he walked with the Lord toward his house. And it was during that journey that uh, the lady with the issue of blood comes into the story, and she reached out and touched the garments of Jesus's, or touched his garments, basically the hem of his robe, and, and she was healed of her ailment in that moment. And Jesus stopped to address the situation. And he said, who touched me? I felt the power go out of me, right? And she said it was me, and he says, you know, he talks to her for a little bit, 
and, and this is going on. And again, I'm wondering about Jairus going like, that's great. I'm happy for you, but we need to get to my house because she's really, she doesn't have much time. My daughter doesn't have much time. And just as this lady's healed and they start to, you know, apparently move, start moving back to the journey to Jairus' house, some people show up. And they say, she's dead. Don't even bother. Don't bother Jesus anymore. She's dead. Um, they were beginning the, the wailing ceremonies for her, for her death. There's some talk of some people wailing and some flutes and things and something kind of cultural at that time that they did. And, and, I, and I wonder in that moment what Jairus would have felt like in his gut. You've been going, walking through this dark time, watching your girl sick and dying and dying and being without hardly any hope, reaching out to Jesus, and yet it's too late. And just the kick in the gut that uh, that, that would be. You know, you have those moments in life when something is so, so painful to you or so hurtful that you, you can't even breathe in the moment. And Jesus looked to Jairus and he tells him, don't be afraid, only believe. And they go on to Jairus' house. Jesus goes in with his three main apostles or disciples with Jairus and his wife. And the girl's dead, and Jesus calls her to arise and brings life back into her. And again, I, I think of that story because in that moment, when Jairus hears that she's dead, I would imagine, I can't know for sure, but I'm guessing that that was probably the worst point of his life when he heard that. Now, in his day, Jesus was on the scene, so... He didn't have to stay there long. And I can only imagine when Jesus said, Talithukumi, which is the Aramaic, and that girl came back from the dead, the elation that would have came over Jairus, going from the worst moment of his life to probably what he might have reflected on as the best moment of his life in a matter of just minutes. Talk about an emotional roller coaster that he was on. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to read those stories and to reflect on what that would have been like. And yet, Jairus, though, again, he had the opportunity to have his daughter healed miraculously. And immediately, his struggle, his trial, his tribulation came to a screeching halt. But we know, often in our lives, in our trials, in our struggles, and we've prayed and we reach out to our Lord Jesus Christ. And the trial doesn't always stop. It doesn't always stop. We say goodbye to loved ones. We go through difficult times. And often we might pray for a different outcome. And sometimes we might see that outcome change. But a lot of times we find that it doesn't. And as we look to our passage this morning in 2 Corinthians 1, it's these kinds of things that we're reflecting on again and learning about more deeply about how the Lord works in our lives and works through our sufferings and tribulations and often 
as we'll talk about, he doesn't take us out of those things. He walks with us through them, through the pain and through the darkness. Now, I'm calling this passage this morning, I'm just, I've, I've borrowed a term from verse 10 of, that we'll read in just a moment, the deliverer. God is the deliverer. And we'll talk about that as we go through this passage, but a lot of us would love to be delivered from the, the hardships, the sufferings. But what we find again is a lot of times the Lord delivers us through the fires. Let's read our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're just looking at verses 8 through 11 this morning. And in verse 8, Paul says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, for our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that... We should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. I asked that question about what's the worst thing in your life and reflected on Jairus for a few moments because as we come to our passage, I believe Paul is sharing what at the moment of his life when he was writing this was probably the worst thing in his life that he had experienced. This great affliction that came upon him while he was in Asia and how he walked through it and what happened uh, in his life and how he learned a great lesson through it that he wanted the Corinthians to understand and learn from as well. And it's the lesson of pain and what that teaches us as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Paul reflects on his lesson of pain and what the outcome of that was. In verse 8, as we'll start here this morning, we're going to t- talk a little bit about this great burden that he faced in his life. And I think what we see in verse 8 is that God will at times allow us to walk through circumstances beyond human ability. Beyond human ability. In other words, God will sometimes take you through things that the only way to get through it is him. And that's what Paul recounts here. He says again, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. It's interesting that he says we don't want you to be ignorant. He's perhaps just relating that he wanted them to know what happened and what he learned through it. He wanted them to know more deeply the God they serve and how God took him through that time and how God worked in his life. So he didn't want them to not know. He wanted them to know exactly what had happened so they could be comforted through this understanding of how God works and who God is. And he talks about this trouble in Asia. 
this trouble. Now, people try to figure out specifically what he's talking about here, this great trouble. And basically, we don't know for sure. There's some things that happened in Asia. That's a Roman province, by the way. It's where the cities of Ephesus and Colossae were. And we know Paul went through some things in Ephesus. The one thing we read about in Acts chapter 19 was this big riot that burst out because of the, the, the tradesmen losing their uh, profits because people were turning from idols to God and they were losing money. The coppersmiths and the silversmiths were losing, you know, their sales were going down. They were losing their market share to the, to the, to the Christians, basically. And there was a riot. But Paul really was protected through that riot. Some brothers and sisters actually protected him in the account of Acts chapter 19. So it would seem to me that's probably unlikely what he's talking about here. Later in this book, Paul lays out all kinds of troubles he went through. Stoned, beaten five times, shipwrecked three times, hungry, naked, thirsty, homeless at times. He talks about a thorn in the flesh later in chapter 12. And we're, not, we're just not sure. He doesn't spell it out, but he's talking about something that happened in Asia. And the way he describes it here, as we'll read again there, he says, we were burdened beyond measure above strength. Burdened beyond measure above or beyond our own strength. What he's saying is this, this trouble in his life was so hard and so heavy, he recognized that in their own human ability, there's no way through this. We can't handle this. That's what he's communicating here. It was beyond human ability. Far, as the Greek spells it out here, it's, it was far beyond their strength way outside of what they could handle on their own. And then he says, it was so bad that we despaired even of life. That word despaired, it's only used two times in the whole New Testament. Guess what book it's used both times in? This book. Matter of fact, the other time we read it a little bit ago in our scripture reading. And we'll pull it back up on the screen in just a little bit here. But the word for despair, it gives the idea of no way out. The idea in the word is like no matter where you look, there's no way out. It's like hopeless, hopelessness. And that's probably how we think of the word despair even today in English minds is like a, a state of hopelessness. I see no way out. I don't know how to go forward. And that's what Paul was communicating. In the heat of their trial, he didn't know how to move forward in his own life. He was at an utter loss. He was without human resource. It was so bad he could see no way out of it. Now, it's interesting, a lot of times um, as Christians, we, we hear the saying, God will never give us more than we can handle. And 
I don't know if that's the best way to communicate the idea we want to communicate with that saying. This verse seems to say something a little different. This verse says, you, you can be in a state that you can't handle. But it, it's, it's never beyond God's ability. And that's what we want to communicate. Because that's the lesson that we're going to see Paul learn in verse 9. God will let things come into your life that are more than you can handle. But it'll never be something that he cannot have the victory through. And I think that's maybe a little bit more precise way to say that. Because what we learn is we must cling to him in faith all the more. And in verse 9, the first part of that verse, he says we had the sentence of death in ourselves. What he's saying here is the word for sentence has the idea of judgment or answer. And he's basically saying our judgment, as we looked at the situation and looked at what we were going through, the only thing we could come up with is we're not going to make it through this. We were, we're going to die. Whatever was going on, he thought for sure they were dead. And so he says, I don't know how we're going to go on with life. We're not going to get out of this alive. That was the level of the suffering he's describing here that happened to him in Asia. In quite honesty, I don't think I've experienced that. I don't think I've been to something so hard that I despaired of life and I said, I'm dead. There's, just, I don't, there's no tomorrow. There's no tomorrow. And yet that's what he's describing. He thought they were dead. As I read through this passage, I read through Paul's affliction that he somewhat describes here. I always, I, I always think back to the book of Job. And I think back to the example of Job. And we probably mentioned him last week as well. But if you remember the story of Job, he was a God-fearing, righteous man. He had an altar. He worshipped God. He made sacrifices on his behalf and behalf of his family. He served the living and true God. And yet he went through the greatest extent of suffering that we read about in the Bible, probably save Jesus Christ himself and his crucifixion. But Job has got to be like number two <laughs> as far as the level of severity of trials that he went through because just in so uh, just a few moments of time, it seems, when you read that book. He lost all of his children. He lost all of his livelihood. It just everything was taken away in a moment. In a whirlwind of chaos and pain, everything was taken away from that man. In Job, when you read that book, and I think it's in chapter 3 where he starts to reflect. And by the way, he, him, he sat for seven days without saying a word. I remember right, seven days I think it was. I, I've never been in a place in my life where I couldn't say anything for a week, that it hurt so bad. But Job did. And I kind of think Job even being able to live through that was mercy of God. Like I just don't know how he just didn't die in the, in the pain of his heart. But in chapter 3 of that book, as that man was stripped of everything, all he had was his wife and a few friends, and to be honest, they didn't bring any comfort. You can go back and read. They did not bring any comfort to him. 
And he says, he begins to say things in that book about, I wish I'd never been born. It would have been better had I never seen the light of day than to go through what I'm going through right now. I think what Job describes in his suffering is very similar to what Paul describes here when one despairs of life. Of this, this hurts so bad, perhaps it would have been better had I never been born to begin with. That this pain is so great that it overshadows any other blessing you've experienced and all the other joys you've been through. And perhaps you and I haven't been through what Paul describes. And I know we haven't been through what Job went through. But I'm sure all of us have been through some stuff. And we've had things in our life that it hurt. And it hurt long enough, hard enough that you start to forget the joys and the blessings that God has brought across your path. And this trial just fills up all your vision and can overcloud everything else to where it may seem hopeless. And it is beyond your own ability to know how you're going to make it through. But it's in those kinds of things, it's in that kind of suffering that God teaches his most potent lesson. And that's where verse 9 takes us. It says that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. This pain, this suffering, even what we might say the worst thing I've been through, it's meant to teach us to fully rely on God. And again, that idea that there's no other way through it without Him. I don't have the strength. I don't have the power. All I can do is fall in His arms and He carries me through. It seems like what Paul is doing in these first couple of verses we're reading, verses 8 and 9, is that he's sharing with the Corinthians this lesson that he, he learned in real time. Now, Paul had been through a lot. Paul had been called into the Lord's ministry. He had been directed at times by the Spirit. He had been able to do miracles and do all kinds of interesting things and preach to different people. And yet there was this one time in his life that he's sharing that stands out where he learns something. It was, it was forever carved upon his heart. And I think that's the lesson of verse 9. That when, when he could see no way out of the situation and the pain he was in, he learned to just completely give it all to God. There's just no, nothing else I can do. He was stripped of any pretense of getting through it in his own power. Same thing that happened to Job. It's the same thing that suffering does in all of our lives. It, it strips us of ourselves so that we stop leaning on ourselves and lean on God alone. That's this great lesson of pain. It's what it's always meant to teach us. We, pain will come into our lives at different levels for different reasons. But at the end of it, always, is the reality that we can trust God more. 
and he'll carry us through whatever it is we face. And so here Paul says, again, he, would, he despaired of life. And I told you that word was used twice. And the other time it's used in this epistle, the only other time it's used in the Bible, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. We read it earlier, but we'll read it again. Where later he says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in what? Despair. You see, in chapter 1, he, he looks back and says, we despaired of life, but we learned to rely on God. We've learned now that when we're perplexed, and it's a very related word to despair. The word for despair is like an intensified word, uh, the, the word for perplex. Perplex means sort of like, I don't see a way. Despair means I absolutely don't see a way. <laughs> see, he's saying, I can still be in these situations. I can be in this pressing. I can be in this affliction. I can be, I don't know what the answer is. That's the idea of perplex there. I don't know what to say or what to do. But that doesn't mean that I have to be completely hopeless and throw my hands up and say, I'm done. I'm done. See, he's sharing this lesson that seems that he learned in real time. There was a time I despaired of life, but now what I've learned is I can go through those things and not despair. I can just cling to my Father all the more. I'll be honest with you. If, I, if you're asking me, I'd like to think I live here. But I don't want to go through what he went through to get there. <laughs> I don't want it. None of us are going to want this, right? And we, we'll pray for things. We'll pray for God to work. We'll pray for God to build our faith. We'll pray to God to help us grow in patience and to grow in our walk with him. But you know the reality of all that? You know, when you pray for anything like that, you pray for patience and you pray to trust God more. You know what you're really praying for, right? You're praying for tribulation. Because the Bible tells us back in Romans 5, tribulation worketh patience or perseverance, with worketh character, which worketh hope, and by, whereby we experience the love of God poured out in our heart, which we read last week as well. Tribulation is the, is the pathway into those areas of growth. And that's what Paul's relaying to the Corinthians. And you know what? He learned this lesson. He learned that it's not me, it's God. It's not my ability, it's God's ability. And it's just about surrendering to God in the suffering, in the trials, in the pain. And, you know, going back to, like, Jairus, if that was us today, that daughter's probably not raising from the dead. We're probably going to the funeral home. We're probably going to the cemetery. We're going to go through all that. But even in something so dark as that, this can be true for the person who clings to God. Again, what we're learning is to allow God to bear the burden that we cannot. That's what he called it, right? It was a burden. It's so heavy, I can't pick it up. 
I have no way to carry this. God can. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, it's another part of the passage we read earlier. Paul says here, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are, or excuse me, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What this passage shows that we have on the screen now, at least we have part of it, is that there's a change in perspective that happens to us when we learn this lesson of pain, that to rely on God and not ourselves. We, are, we begin to look at it from God's perspective. That's kind of what he's saying here. We're looking at it from an eternal perspective, not a temporal perspective. We know that this life is not all there is. So the suffering of this life is working towards something that Paul almost describes as kind of like this unimaginable, great and glorious thing. He calls it the eternal weight of glory. That's, that's one of the things we have to learn as we go through suffering. To see it from God's perspective. To see it as part of how he's going to grow us and what he's going to reveal in and through us even in the ages to come. And it teaches us we have to look beyond just this life. We, we, we want it to, to be fixed in this life. And that's not what God promises us. But he does promise us this. That in the end, you will look back. And it will, probably will not be in this life. But you will look back. And you will see the God, the, excuse me, you will see the good that God did in it. That's the change of perspective that he's teaching us. And may I point out, too, that in verse 17, I, I, it's interesting. It's, like, it's almost like he's sort of doing a play on words. He, in chapter 1, he says he had this burden that he had to carry that was too heavy for him. But later he says, light affliction. How does he do that? He, he, he switches from like heaviness to lightness in his perspective of suffering. How is that possible? It's when God's carrying the burden. And then he talks about weight, but he says it's the weight of glory now. It's not the weight of the burden, it's the weight of the glory. So he's, he's teaching us to look to our Heavenly Father and go to Him. And it's, it's again, it's about a life of surrender. It's about a life of giving it over to God. Yes, we pray. Yes, we pray for all things. But we don't know the outcome. But we do know that whatever happens, God will carry us through it. Because he is good. And so often it's not the suffering to change, that changes, but how we view it. Monica Dickens tells the story of a young child named David. David was a two-year-old with leukemia. And he was taken by his mother, Deborah, to a hospital in Boston to see a Dr. Truman there who specialized in treating children with cancer and various blood diseases. But Dr. Truman's prognosis was devastating as he said that David only has a 50-50 chance of survival. The countless clinic visits, the blood tests, the intravenous drugs, the fear and pain, the mother's ordeal can be almost as bad as the child's because she must stand by and able to bear the pain herself. 
David never cried in the waiting room. And although his friends in the clinic had to hurt him and stick needles in him, he hustled in ahead of his mother with a smile, sure of the welcome he always got. And when he was three, David had to have a spinal tap. Painful procedure for any age. And it was explained to him that because that he was sick, Dr. Truman had to do something to make him better. And Deborah said to her son, if it hurts, remember, it's because he loves you. Still, the procedure was horrendous. It took three nurses to hold David still while he yelled and sobbed and struggled. When it was almost over, the tiny boy, soaked in sweat and tears, looked up at the doctor and gasped, Thank you, Dr. Tuman, for my hurting. I think we hear a story like that and we can relate to the lesson that, again, God brings pain into our lives for our good and growth to make us more spiritually healthy because he loves us. But that takes a radical change of perspective on suffering. So Paul in verses 8 and 9 shares this lesson he learned. The lesson of pain takes you more deeply into the arms of your father. And you become less reliant upon yourself. Which is ultimately for your good. But yet he gives testimony in verses 10 and 11 to the power of God. And verse 10 pictures God as the deliverer, the deliverer. Verse 10, Paul says of God the Father, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he still will deliver us. He says God always delivers us. How can he say that? <laughs> How can he say I despaired of life, I trust God, he'll always deliver me. What does he mean? What is he talking about here? Well, God did intervene in his circumstances at that time. When he despaired of life, when it was so hard, he does give testimony that God did deliver them from so great a death. Paul thought for sure they were going to die, and they did not die. In God's will, in, in God's plan for Paul, it was not yet time to die. And so Paul did not, and God did deliver him. And you know what Paul did when God delivered him from that? He praised the Lord like all of us would. If we're going through something very hurtful and painful and it, and it stops, all of us are going to probably sing out to God in that moment. And we're going to be happy, we're going to be joyful that we don't have to go through that anymore. And so that is what happened to Paul. But let me remind you, though, that's not what always happened to Paul. This time, he didn't die. How did Paul eventually die? He was beheaded for his faith. He did die eventually. There did come a time in his life when he was afflicted and he died. Did God deliver him? And I would say to you, yes, God did deliver him. Because God delivers us even through resurrection through eternal life we have, that even if we die in this life, 
we immediately enter the presence of our Father, and, and that is in itself a deliverance of God. This is how the Lord challenges us, challenges us in our thinking and our perspective of this world. So often we get caught up, and this world is all there is about. It's all it's about. But no, God is using our life here to prepare us for even greater things ahead. Now, Paul here in this verse, this language is interesting. He says, he delivered us from the death. And then he says, and he does deliver us. And then he says, and we trust that he will still deliver us. So Paul gives this kind of threefold aspect of God's deliverance in verse 10. And it seems like what Paul is saying from his perspective is that this time God did deliver us from the death. And then it seems like Paul's saying, and I think he'll continue to deliver us. And I think the notion there is Paul knew with confidence that as, as long as God wanted him ministering and in this world, he would stay in this world. And God would see him through other threats to his life. God's going to keep him here as long as God wants him here. But then ultimately Paul says, and yet will still deliver us. And I can't be sure in that one verse, but based on the other things that Paul brings out in this letter, and even how he talks about the God who can raise the dead in verse 9, that Paul may be expressing his hope of resurrection. That yes, God delivered me this time, and yes, he'll probably deliver me some more. But there will there'll also be an ultimate deliverance when I'm raised from the dead. And all trial and all suffering is no more. And obviously that would happen even the moment we leave this world. We go into the Father's arms and we are beyond any more suffering. And I think Paul may be trying to capture all that aspect. No, God's always the deliverer. It doesn't mean you survive, but he's always going to take you through it just like he did in Paul's life. His worst affliction to date in verse 8, his later afflictions that came, because he's just getting started (laughs) when he wrote this letter, and then even when he finally was put to death for his testimony of Christ. In all of those ways, God delivered him. Just not the way maybe he wanted him to. But he did work, he did work out his plan, and he brought him through those things. And we are often so tempted to think that deliverance means God will take us from the situation or take the situation from us. But I think there's another deliverance. God take you through it. God take you through it, even if it's our own death. And so the point of verse 10 that I see that I walk away with is that no matter what we face, when we trust God, it's victory. It's victory. It doesn't matter the physical outcome. It's always victory from the eternal perspective of God the Father. Matter of fact, Paul, just in the next chapter, In verse 14, he says this, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. He always leads in triumph. Even through the the time of hurt, pain, suffering, even when it's our turn to leave this world, God can have the victory through it. He is indeed the great deliverer, always comforting, always working out his good plan. And we never lose when we trust Christ. Imar Dahan tells this story. A little piece of wood 
once complained bitterly because the owner kept whittling away at it, cutting and filling it with holes. But the one who was cutting it so remorselessly paid no attention to it, complaining. He was making a flute out of that piece of wood. And he was too wise to resist from doing so, even though the wood complained bitterly. He seemed to say, little piece of wood, without these holes and all this cutting, you would be a black stick forever, just a useless piece of wood. What I am doing now may make you think that I am destroying you, but instead I will change you into a flute. And your sweet music will charm the souls of men and comfort many a sorrowing heart. My cutting you is the making of you. For only thus can you be a blessing in the world. We all understand that analogy to the flute. That through what it would perceive as trials and pains. The maker is cutting away what doesn't belong. And that's exactly the picture we see of suffering in our own lives. God is using that to chisel, to cut away at that which gets in our own way. He's stripping us of our self-reliance and teaching us all the more to trust him in this world so that people can see his work, his love through us. And we come to verse 11. And he says, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. And we're making the point here, God chooses to work through prayer. There was a storm once raging upon the seas and a ship stuck in this storm. The ship was taking in a lot of water. Realizing that his ship was sinking, the captain suddenly called out, Does anyone here know how to pray? And a man stepped forward and said, Yes, Captain, I know how to pray. Good, the captain said. You pray while the rest of us put on life jackets. We're one short. So. Verse 11 reminds us of the power of prayer. Prayer. Power of prayer. Even in his distress and the things he went through, Paul could see that the Corinthians were alongside him and the fact that they were praying with him through his troubles, through his afflictions. They were joined with Paul in that sense. And Paul believed, again, in that situation, that God was going to work in his life in a way in accordance to their prayers. Now, the word here for helping together, as it's rendered, at least in the New King James, the idea of helping together, it's this word of like, you're helping with and under. And it's like everybody's with each other and everybody's bearing the burden together. And you ever, you ever help someone like move a couch or something? Or, you know, even when we, we were doing some things here, we were moving some pews from up here. And these pews are heavy, by the way. They are heavy. And it takes like six to eight people to really carry it easily. But you get everybody under it and everybody lifts in unison and you can do it, right? You can help together. And he's picturing the community of the saints, that even as he's going through something, and even as he's learning the lesson to trust God, and as he's going through all that individually, he still sees the community of believers alongside him and helping him through it as well. 
And in this situation, they prayed, and, and God answered their prayer very specifically. And I have, I have confidence that God still does that at times. That there's times when we pray, and he answers it specifically. Right? Our brother Bob gave a testimony a moment ago about prayer and through the birth of his granddaughter, and we say, praise the Lord, he's answered our prayers specifically in that way. But we realize at times we pray, and our good father says, no, we're going to do it this way. This is what's best. We've all had those moments in our life where we prayed for something very specifically, and that's not what happened. And it wasn't that God was deaf or that he wasn't listening or that he didn't answer. He still answered by doing his good will in your life. But he does choose to work in prayer. And we can never, we never want to minimize prayer. Some people may use prayer as a shallow platitude, like, oh, I'm praying for you, you know, I'm praying for you. And, you know, maybe that's, you know, it's easy just to say that, right? There's somebody in pain, in pain over there. I'm praying for you as you back away. <laughs> that can be the Christian attitude. But no, that's not, that's, not, that's not right. We always want to enter into somebody's pain with them and come alongside them, as we talked about last week, as God wants to use us to comfort others. He wants to use us as his vehicles to do that, to come alongside others and encourage them. But at the same time, don't minimize prayer. Prayer is a vehicle that God has prescribed for us through which he chooses to work and intervene in our our daily lives. That's the testimony of Scripture. That is the testimony of Paul. Pray in all things. Give thanks in all things. Take everything to God the Father. He's going to work. He's going to work through your prayers. It may not be exactly how you pray, and sometimes God won't give you what you ask for because he's too good to do that. But let us never minimize prayer. You see Paul here. Because you prayed, he saw a link that that's why we've actually got out of this alive because you were praying and God chose to incorporate that in his work in our lives. That's a powerful testimony of prayer. We never want to forget that. And something else that this communicates, this idea that we see here, this helping together and they were praying and Paul says and God's working through your prayers and he's He's working in our lives through your prayers. And again, there's that community of saints coming together and praying together. And earlier in the passage we talked about last week, there's comforting that goes on from, from uh, one member of the body of Christ to the others. There's this community. And, and you just see in all of this passage that God's intention is, is, is not for people to suffer alone. That's not his intention. And you may be the person that can come alongside, and you may be the person that is praying at home, but you are helping to bear it with them. So when you do say you're going to pray for somebody, if you really do that, then you indeed are doing the work of your Heavenly Father when you go and you pray. And you know what it all communicates to that person? It communicates to them, you are not alone in this. And that is something God has in mind for all of us to communicate that through our actions, through our prayers, through our love of one another. 
And Paul looks ahead in this last verse, verse 11. He looks ahead and he sees the results and what's probably already began to happen. He says, you helped in prayer. And he says, that thanks may be given by many people on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. He says, because you prayed and God worked in this way, that's causing other people now to focus on God and praise him for what he did through their prayers. In other words, the results of all of this is that God gets the glory. People in Corinth and familiar with this situation were seeing a bigger God through how God was delivering Paul and working in his life. And again, that's what we see. When, when we can come here and we can share a prayer praise, that gets our attention and we say, praise the Lord. But even when somebody is in the midst of some trial and, it, and it's not delivery from the circumstance, but they're going through it, even when they praise God in the suffering, what does that do to other people? It makes them see God bigger because they see he's the one upholding you as you go through it. So when you praise God, whether it... It seems to be the blessing side of it or the suffering side of it. You get a chance to make God bigger in the eyes of other people. And that's where Paul's focus ultimately goes. May God be glorified through whatever happens in my life. Whether I live or die, may Christ be magnified is what he says in Philippians. And you're seeing here what brought him to those conclusions. He saw that his father was going to work no matter what. And he could always trust him. So when you and I suffer, when we feel we're going through maybe the worst thing we've ever been through, he calls us back to him. Come to me. He's the one that can give us rest. He's the only one that can bear these burdens. Not you, not me. He alone. And we must remember his goodness and praise him no matter what is happening, and that he may be glorified. Father, we thank you for this passage, Lord, these words that you share to us, that you've preserved for us, that speak to our hearts even today, because all of us suffer. We know to some degree of what Paul speaks of here. We've been in places and times in our life when we didn't know what to do. It hurt. It was beyond our own strength, and yet we can turn to you and you bear the burden for us and take us through those fires. Father, may we continue to learn this lesson in our life to just rely on you and not ourselves, to bring every ache of the heart to you in prayer and put it beneath your feet so that we may have your peace and joy even in the midst of suffering. Lord, continue to teach this in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name.